Okay, we're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is the rest of Luke chapter 1. So do you follow with me? We're going to pick it up at verse 5. It says this. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of a division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by a lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled at their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favoured one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. 
And this is the sixth month with her who was and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country of the town of Judea, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfilment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he's looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth and she bore a son. And her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. <coughs> and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbours. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that he would be saved from our enemies, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Our new child will be called the prophet of the Most High, you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel.
Well, do keep that passage open. We're going to have a look at that together. Just to say there's an outline of where we're going in the service sheets, so do make use of that. And there will be opportunity at the end to ask any comments or questions about what I said or uh, other things in the passage that we don't get to look at in the sermon that you'd like us to think a bit more about. But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who is good, truthful and sovereign. And then we pray please now as we uh, reflect on your word uh, that we would be those who vindicate uh, what you are really like, that by listening, trusting and obeying your word, we would show you to be the God um, who is truthful, good and sovereign. In Jesus' name, amen. When we get to the virgin birth of Jesus, people can get very excitable. Some people want to show that it can't possibly have happened. Others are committed to contending for it and wanting to prove that it is true. Now, one of the reasons for wanting to prove or disprove the virgin birth is that it's thought to be a new thing. I mean, who has ever seen a miraculous birth before? And it can become a sort of linchpin on which Christianity stands or falls. However, there have already been a number of unlikely births in the, New, in the Old Testament. The birth of Isaac to Abraham and Sarah, who was barren. The birth of Jacob to Isaac and Rebekah, who was barren. <coughs> Moses was rescued in a small ark on the River Nile. Samuel was born to a woman who was barren, Hannah. Now, in each case, what was witnessed was not simply a miracle. Each time, the unlikely birth was signalling an important development in God's purposes. You know, whether the promise of God would die with Abraham if he had no offspring, or God's provision of a leader in Moses to rescue the, his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. That is to say that careful attention is often given in the Bible to the unlikely birth of a person who is to play an important role in God's purposes. And it's precisely in the repetition of such events that their true significance is revealed. Luke's account begins with the angel Gabriel appearing to Zechariah. Gabriel comes as a response to Zechariah's prayer. So chapter 1, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. What do you think Zechariah's prayer was? Uh, we're not told. 
All that we're told is that his prayer has been answered and that his wife will bear a son. Now, we know from verse 7 that Elizabeth was barren and both she and Zechariah were very old. And so we might think that his prayer was the reversal of the couple's barrenness, in which case the birth of baby John would be the perfect answer. But presumably, there were many childless women in Israel at that time. And it'd be hard to believe that Elizabeth was the only one. And it would be reasonable to assume that many of those women prayed sincerely for a child. And it's reasonable to assume that many weren't given a child. In other words, Elizabeth's story is told not because it's a a typical story of every troubled person who prays, but precisely because it's unusual. What happened to Elizabeth didn't happen to anyone else in Israel at this time. That's why the story is told. Of all the troubled people in Israel, the Lord chose to grant the prayer of this one. Now in verse 14, we learn that many will rejoice at his birth. And that verse 16, this baby John will turn many back to the Lord God. So Zechariah will rejoice, not only because he is a father, but also at what the mission of what the mission of this child means for his people. John's coming means that salvation is near. Joy comes because John's ministry signals the Lord's decisive work for salvation. In other words, with the unlikely birth of John, we witness not just the reversal of the couple's barrenness, but God's promise to be realised. Now, the angel Gabriel makes um, another birth announcement, this time to Mary. And what does he reveal about her son? Let's pick it up from verse 31. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Consider a few observations. Mary's son, Jesus, is the king that God promised that God promised to bring from David's family, verse 32. He will reign over the house of Jacob, verse 33. Now, if you recall, David ruled over the 12 tribes, which traced their ancestry back to Jacob. But after Solomon, the kingdom was split, So when Gabriel talks about a king over all the house of Jacob, he means that the kingdom is going to be united again. 
This kingdom will last forever, verse 33. Jesus will reign forever. His kingdom never ends. And for his subjects, that will mean ultimately, ultimate safety and security. And then finally, look at who makes Jesus king in verse 32. It is the Lord God. It is God, his father. Now, we're used to choosing our own leaders. And if we don't like them, well, we can just vote them out. But it's not us who makes Jesus king. If God makes him king, then he will be king no matter what. He will be our king even if we don't choose him. We're answerable to him, not he to us. Now in verse 46, Mary begins by praising God for his action for her. And notice that Mary is spoken not as the source of grace, but as the recipient of grace. Now we don't find Mary to be the central character of this passage. And having praised God for his action for her, she then turns in verse 51 to consider God's actions for his people. Here's the question. To what events do you think Mary is referring? Now, the events themselves concern the vindication of Israel. So have a look at verse 51. Uh, 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. So two groups of people are mentioned here. There are uh, the rulers, and then there are the humble. (laughs) And the relationship between the two is that the humble are those who are oppressed by these rulers. So presumably Mary has in mind the Romans and those like them who use their secular power to oppress. And Mary speaks of a time when God removes these rulers from their thrones so that the humble will no longer be oppressed. This is the category of the vindication of Israel, that no longer will they be oppressed by secular powers, but that God will act to defeat their enemies and bring them rest. But to what actual event do you think Mary refers? Well, we might think that Mary is looking back to past events in the Old Testament. Mary does, after all, use the past tense. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. And though this view is possible, it's not commonly held because, well, the whole setting of Mary's praise is future-focused. Another suggestion is that Mary is describing what God habitually does and therefore will do again. But this view doesn't quite do justice to the theme of fulfilment. And what Mary says in verses 54 and 55 regarding about God keeping his promise to Abraham. The most satisfying approach is to take these events as portraying the victory 
that Jesus will achieve. That these consequences results from Jesus' past conception. Verse 49. And these events are so certain that even though they are future events, they can be portrayed as past realities. That is to say that this one has been conceived and therefore this is what will inevitably follow. Mary is anticipating the victory of Jesus Christ and what that will mean for his people in terms of safety, security and rest. It's interesting to note that whereas Gabriel sees all of this as God keeping his promise to David, uh, chapter 1, verse 32, 33, Mary sees this as God keeping his promise to Abraham, chapter 1, verse 55. But, of course, they're not two promises, but the one promise of God to install his king and mercifully restore his creation order. Well, in verse 66, the people ask, what then will this child be? What do you think caused the question? Well, it's part of a certain pattern that we see here and elsewhere in Scripture. <coughs> God has signaled by these births stupendous events that would follow. Normally, when a child is born, the father names the child. But when God names the child, it shows that this child is important to his work. And it prompts the question of, what then will this child be? Well, the question is answered by Zechariah as he turns into a prophet. And interestingly, Zechariah doesn't begin with John. I mean, John only gets a few words at the end. The substance of what he said would be about the coming of the Lord, the coming of Jesus. And John is described here as the witness, verse 76. And so we can never speak of John in isolation. Rather, he prepares, he's going to prepare the way for Jesus by calling on people to repent. You know, a superficial reading might make you think that there are two special births in chapter one. But when you read more closely, actually one announces the other. You know, one is, is the focal point of all of history, and the other points it out. Now, at the end of Luke's Gospel, I know we're not there yet, but just to begin to be uh, seeing how he puts it together. At the end of Luke's Gospel, in Luke uh, 24, 45, 47, Jesus will explain further about his kingship. And it's a kingdom of repentance and forgiveness. Repentance is picking up the way that turning to Christ is about recognising two truths. The truth about us and the truth about Jesus. The truth about us, that we've offended uh, against God and we cannot save ourselves. Uh, the truth is that we despair of ourselves and being able to work our way to God by any means. The truth about Jesus is that he is our only hope 
because he is the king who has promised mercy to his people. And for those who turn to him in this way, he pays the punishment for their wrongdoing and his perfect righteousness is counted as ours. We are clothed in his righteousness. And that's why he will put repentance and forgiveness of sins together, only possible through his death. That's the kind of king he is. And this is the kind of king that he will be forever. And this is where Luke is going to take us and where John will be pointing. Well, we began by observing how excitable people can be about the virgin birth. But rather than being excited or excitable about proving or disproving whether it happened, Luke draws our attention to the significance of it. That like other unlikely births in the Bible, the birth of Jesus signals a turning point in redemptive history. That God's promise to establish his kingdom, to vindicate his people and provide mercy for them, has arrived in the person of Jesus. Yet, his birth is unlike any of the unlikely births that we've previously seen in the Bible. He was born without a human father. Who was the last person to be born without a human father? Adam, the head of humanity. And so we're never to think that the virgin birth imperils Jesus' true humanity. Now, Adam was not born uh, by the procreation between two humans, and yet he was fully human. Rather, the virgin birth does underline Jesus' independence from the rest of humanity. Now, this will in turn help explain Jesus' sinlessness. But it also points to Jesus as a fresh start for a new humanity. Now, he will be known as nothing less than the second Adam who has come to restore God's creation. Well, let me pray, and then I'll open up to any questions or comments you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to begin um, uh, reading and reflecting on uh, Luke's account of um, uh, the life, death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you how he's flagged up in the introduction that he understands these events as the fulfilment of that which is promised. And Father, as we reflect on other unlikely births in the scriptures, we thank you how it helps us to see that the significance of the virgin birth and the unlikely birth of John signals to us turning points in redemptive history, but actually nothing less than the fulfilment of your promises. We thank you that the one born to Mary is nothing less than the king that you promised David, who would rule on David's throne uh, forever and provide mercy for his people and rest from his enemies. Father, we thank you 
uh, for these truths and how actually, as we read through Luke and then into a second work in the book of Acts, that we see how this um, kingdom is extended to the nations of the world and even to us. So we do pray, please, that you help us to understand rather than be excitable about the virgin birth, that actually we would see its significance and that that would give us confidence and certainty in the truths that we've been considering. And we ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, would anyone like to ask a question or make a comment? Yeah, let me just repeat the question. So, um, mentioned the end. Was, to be fair, it was all a bit. It all came thick and fast. Um, how a the fact that Jesus doesn't have a human father, how is that then a fresh start for humanity? So, I think it's the idea that um, since Adam and the fall, everyone has been born in Adam. So it's a sort of thing that's picked up on in sort of Romans five. And therefore, we, um, you know, one of the things that we, well, interestingly, one of the things we inherit from Adam is the fact that we're made in God's image, like Adam is. But the other thing that we inherit from him is the fact that we are under sin. Um, and that's, you know, and that's not difficult to prove because you just look at all the characters in the Bible, you know, they're all, they're all flawed precisely because they are descendants of Adam. Um, so in that sense, the fact that there is a break here, that actually he has no human father, in the sense that you know, he, he didn't come uh, about by the procreation of a, um, a man and woman, is something unusual, and actually is signalling, actually this is a, um, there's a discontinuity here, there's sort of a break um, now, that in itself, you might think, well, that can mean all sorts of things. And this is where it's sort of like, well, the direction it's going in is that as we go through the, um, well, take, um, we'll be looking at this at Growth Group on Wednesday, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 will identify Jesus as the head of a new humanity, um, as in he's the second Adam and that that will be the means by which God will restore his creation. So basically, you can be either you know, in the old Adam, facing death and judgment, or in the new Adam, and given life, righteousness, um, that sort of thing. So it's kind of subtle, but I wanted to make it, because I think that's the thing that we probably ought to be getting a lot more excited about and focused on, you know, rather than simply it was, it was just a miracle. Um, Actually, the significance of the miracle is, is, is really a basis for the hope. And also, I think with that, it, I mean, one other thing, the, um, and we're going to have to be patient with the whole Luke thing because we get 
in, I don't know who kept calling the phrase, but enjoy the ride was one of the phrases that was used when we did this in growth group. But um, I think it might be a phrase from Tom, I don't know initially, but uh, I think Simon enjoyed it. But the, um, at the moment, the focus is on Israel and that this king is going to unite um, the kingdoms you know, and, and actually rule over Jacob. But obviously, if he is a new Adam, the scope suddenly you know, blows your mind because that is no longer just a, a king of Israel, but actually he's going to be a ruler of the whole world. And that's ultimately going to be the basis of our hope because obviously you know, we're not part of Jacob, as it were. Um, but with, with this, I mean, there's a lot of the tease because you've got all these announcements and it's kind of like, oh, we've just got to enjoy the ride. But that's where we're going. Is that, is that case easy? Cool. Anybody else? After Wednesday, I could say questions or prophetic insights. Those who were there. Joel. Yeah, that's a fair question. So I'm going to repeat the question for the recording. So bearing in mind, um, Joseph wasn't his biological father, and if Joseph was of a line of David, what does that mean for Jesus? So um, I think that what we are... I mean, I think, interestingly... I mean, I'm trying to be careful with my language here because Joseph does become identified as Jesus' father. So he is, he is, he does have a father and his father is Joseph. The point is that um, that Jesus didn't come through the procreation of Joseph to Mary. So I think that's, I think that's where the answer lies in that actually, you know, it's, um, there is still an order there. He's, he, he, he's part of a family, Joseph. I mean, I think we get to that a little bit later in terms of <clears throat> when Joseph hears that this has happened, what's he going to do with it? How is he going to understand God's purposes for Mary and therefore for himself? But what you know, but the way it unfolds is that you know, he, he, he is Jesus' father and therefore Jesus is you know, of the line of David. I think. Yeah, cool. It's all right. Yeah. Fair point, though, because we can't lose the line of David because that's... Well, I hope you... I don't know. Do you get... I, mean, I hope you get excited when you read things like that now because having done one kings, you suddenly think, like, hang on, if he is the king of a line of David and he will reign forever, you just think, this is... A lot of things should be far off because we've seen all of these kings and how they've fallen short how they fail to provide rest for God's people, how they sinned, how they jeopardized the promises, all of that. And now we've got one, and the stage is set for this is the, this is the king who is going to bring all those things and more. So, yeah, 
very important that we don't lose that. Good one. Time for one more. Yeah, thanks, Ricky. So the question about John, did he have a human father as his miraculous in the same way that Jesus was? That sort of question. So I think, let me give you what I think the answer is and then we'll... <laughs> um, so I think what's happening, so I think it is different. And I think Jesus is born um, of a virgin, whereas I think... In, in, in the cases of like Abraham and Isaac and Elizabeth and Zechariah, that um, you know, the womb is opened and that they conceive. And so this isn't a, a virgin birth, but a, but, a, but a miraculous birth, not least because of their, um, uh, their age. Um, I say that because I think the language, I'm not sure if it is in Luke, if anyone finds it, let me know, but, but I think in, in Genesis there's a language of um, the Lord opened their womb, so it's that sort of thing. But also, do you notice in, with Jesus, in contrast, that the narrative is slowed down, and therefore, you know, in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore this child will be called Holy, the Son of God. And you don't get that same kind of language with the others. Um, and I think, in many ways, that would explain there is a uniqueness. Well, and I want to be careful, because I guess when I say, like, oh, there's been loads of unlikely births in the Bible, I'm not, you, know, you don't want to just say, oh, like, Jesus is one of many. In a sense, he is. There's lots of surprising births and miraculous births. And, and that gives us this whole point, is that they, they represent... Um, inter important turning points in God's purposes and therefore help us to follow what God is doing. But nevertheless, Jesus stands out as, you know, as, as unique in terms of we, we haven't, seen, haven't seen that before, I think. Okay, cool. Great, okay, let's leave it there. We're going to sing another carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem.